everyone, and welcome to Nella's Tin Trunk Podcast. Where to begin about Rwanda? It's a country I've grown to love. My first time there, while in the capital city, Kigali, I said, if I were ever forced to move to Nairobi, I would be It's sometimes called the Switzerland of Africa, which is certainly applicable in the city of Kigali in terms of efficiency, cleanliness, and safety. When we think of Rwanda, several things may spring to mind. Probably first is the 1994 genocide, the horror of the hundred days of killing, followed by the remarkable forgiveness that has allowed the country to recover. We may also think of the success of saving the mountain gorillas from extinction and bringing them to the forefront of awareness about these gentle giants and how important they are to us now. That would lead us probably to thinking about Diane Fossey, for it was she who ignited that awareness through her uncompromising passion. You may not immediately think about the fact that this country has the highest representation globally of female members in parliament and that it prides itself on gender equality and progress towards more and more of that. I remember when Obama spoke at the Global Entrepreneur Summit in 2016 and told the African leaders in the room that they were, quote, playing football, he might have said soccer, with half a team and that more women should be in top jobs. Indeed, Rwanda has done a better job than many other African nations on this front. The cleanliness and sustainability of the country is also worth mentioning. They do a monthly cleanup countrywide that I'll speak about later. It's meant to keep the place clean and to help create a collective sense of community and collaboration. In my conversations with Rwandans, many give a lot of credit for these things to Paul Kagame. Rwanda's incumbent president, Paul Kagame, is now 66 years old. He was actually born in 1957, on the very day I began writing this, October 23rd, which I think is kind of cool. He's been president of Rwanda since 2000, and that's the longest-serving president so far. Kagame has played a significant role in the Tutsi resistance to the genocide regime when he was president of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or the FPR as it's now known, and they are credited with ending the genocide. Many credit Kagame as well with the national healing that has occurred since the horrible genocide of 94. I've also heard he's ready to relax and that many are hoping whomever carries things onwards will have this unifying and pacifying effect. In Rwanda, I feel 100% safe. Frankly, I feel safer in Rwanda than in any other country in Africa, and safer than I feel in many parts of the U.S. and in Europe. When you drive around Rwanda, you see people hard at work, riding bicycles, walking, carrying enormous amounts of everything on their backs and bikes, in the case of men, and balanced on their heads, most often in the case of women. I interviewed one of these men who ride their bikes at the speed of light down the main highways with 500 pounds, yes, 250 kg of potatoes on board, 
So stay tuned for that podcast coming soon. The roads are windy and rural and well-maintained. A sign of the infrastructure here is that on the three-hour drive from Kigali to the Volcanoes National Park, where you go to visit the gorillas, the entire two-lane road in the countryside is lined with streetlights. One cannot speak of Rwanda without thinking, indeed, of that genocide that occurred in 1994. So let's get that out of the way. I don't say that flippantly, as I feel when I am there that the young men and women, for most are indeed young, as the generation ahead of them is what was decimated in the killing frenzy that took place in a hundred days and killed around 800,000 people. Those young men and women feel to me like they are indeed ready to move on. Every person you meet has a story, a very sad one, about the loss of family and friends. And they also have stories of resilience, recovery, and forgiveness. Personally, I believe that forgiveness is one of the most important elements of humanity and that it is powerful and liberating to forgive. I think being in a country where there has been such collective forgiveness is partly what makes Rwandans so special. If you want more on this information, there are lots of books you can read. Before moving to Africa, I read Philip Gorovich's rather horrifyingly titled book, We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Families. It's a hard read, as the title suggests, and it's also a comprehensive overview of what happened and the complexities around it all, in my opinion. So let's look at some data. Rwanda has around 12.6 million people. It's one of the most densely populated countries in the world, with 480 people per square kilometer. For comparison, the Netherlands has 507 people per square kilometer. Most people live in rural areas. Only 20% live in urban ones, and Kigali is the most populated of those, with about 1.3 million people. Due to the genocide, the population in Rwanda is young. The median age is around 20 years old. The community cleanup project I mentioned earlier is called Umuganda. Umuganda is a Kinyarwanda word and means coming together in common purpose. On the last Saturday of every month, people come together to work on the betterment of their communities. Rwandans between the ages of 18 and 65 are required to participate. And Umuganda is a tradition that dates back centuries and was revitalized as a way to create social cohesion and shared responsibility among Rwandans. It seems to work, too. Rwanda is pretty spotless by any comparison, and compared to other metropolises in Africa, it's extremely so. And it isn't just about tidying up the place. Each area has a community, and these communities gather together to take the temperature of one another regularly, to make sure people are okay. I've heard stories of the community gathering to help marriages in trouble, individuals needing help, and so on. So let's talk about visiting Rwanda on a safari. 
Until the past couple of years, most visited Rwanda to see the mountain gorillas and then headed onwards for more safari experiences in other countries. Many still do that, but more and more we see people seeing more of Rwanda on their trips. For Tintronk, a great inspiration to do this has been the involvement of African parks with the Rwandan Development Board in Akagera National Park. Akagera was basically overrun with poaching and encroachment until quite recently. They now have a haven for rhinos, elephants, lions, and so much more. This beautiful and ecologically very diverse area of eastern Rwanda is an outstanding safari destination. It resembles East Africa with grass plains, and where I like to go has a private concession where only that camp can drive around. The tents are positioned along the lake, so you can go out in the mornings in the car and see all the normal animals, and then take the boat out in the afternoons and see those same animals drinking on the lakeshore. I saw my first rhinos drinking from a boat here, not to mention a lot of other animals, drinking in that afternoon light, a lion snoozing lakeside, and birds everywhere. On that trip, we came across a dead hippo floating in the water. After parking the boat and having some sundowners, we drove back to camp using the infrared spotlight, and you could now see red crocodile eyes reflecting in light, in the light all around the carcass. The next day, I wanted to check on the dead hippo, and we couldn't find it. Eventually, my guide spotted it floating way out in the middle of the lake, so we went out there and found about 20 enormous crocodiles trying to eat it. It was fascinating. And one big croc even came right up to our boat, I guess wondering if we were another floating hippo. Frankly, you might feel like a hippo on your trip to Rwanda. The arrival of some top-level lodges, coupled with a pair I already really liked, means you can have high-touch, personal, bespoke safaris in stunning lodges as you visit the animals and trek to see the gorillas. And I'm not sure that all that trekking counters all that delicious wine and food they offer. I mean, who wouldn't want to sit in a perfectly heated, totally private, hot pool with an outdoor fire roaring, sipping something delicious while watching the ever-changing light over the volcanoes? and then wake to forest buffalo or even forest elephant, drinking from that very pool in the dawn light. It's certainly a highlight for me every time I get to do it. So what are the logistics of visiting Rwanda? You can arrive from Europe or the Gulf or elsewhere in Africa quite easily. Begin with two nights in Kigali and go on a tailor-made private tour of the city to see what most interests you. That should include the Genocide Museum, as it is powerful and sad, and yet beautiful and inspiring, too. Then it could, it could include a foodie adventure, or an art one. The city is actually booming with contemporary artists these days. Fashion is also coming up, up and coming, and meeting designers is a fun way to give a theme to your exploring. You could then drive out to Akagera National Park for three nights and have that more East African safari experience, seeing the animals mentioned above from jeeps and boats. From there, you can jump in a chopper because the hilly landscape makes airstrips, airstrips pretty hard to construct. 
Or you can take the long drive across the agricultural countryside to the Volcanoes National Park. You won't believe how steeply they are farming with fields reaching the, fields reaching the tops of the mountain peaks. At the volcanoes, I recommend four nights. And if you're a fan of slow safari, go for five. It's another world out here. And doing two treks to see the gorillas is a must, in my opinion, as you never know how the first trek will go. You always see different gorilla families, and the experiences are always very different and wonderful. The treks will also di differ. Depending on which gorilla family you visit, you may walk a long way up the mountain, or you may only walk a short distance. It depends on which family you're visiting, and every day is different, as the gorillas decide where to go based on what they feel like eating. If it is sunny and warm or cloudy and misty and other things like that. Your guide works with us to recommend the length of difficulty to trek and try and suit your needs as much as possible. But these gorillas can move through the forest much more easily than we can, so being fit and ready for a hike helps. It also helps to hire a local porter. All the tin trunk clients do, and I feel it should actually be a mandatory cost built into your gorilla permit. It costs nothing, and you are supporting the local communities in a very important way. When the community feels, in a real sense, the benefits of tourism, things go smoothly for conservation. And there is basically no downside to rural Rwandans believing that gorilla tourism is good. Besides, the porters love helping you when necessary. An outstretched hand to get up a steep muddy bit or over dense foliage on the steep hillside is a wonderful thing sometimes. You trek up the mountain to where the trackers have communicated to your guide the gorillas are. And these are specialized guides that only do the gorilla tracking. The trackers are keeping an eye on the gorillas every day, so you'll have a good sense of how long it might take to get to them. Once near, you rest, drop your backpack with your porter, grab your camera and hopefully binoculars, and head in to see them for your short one-hour visit, which feels even shorter. Most are surprised by how close we actually are to the gorillas, and also by how relaxed they are around us. After all, only the babies see us for the first time. The others know that each day a group of gangly, clumsy humans will show up and laugh at the playful antics of their children, sigh at the majesty of it all, and then depart. People are also surprised by how huge the silverbacks are. Silverbacks are the adult males whose hair has turned white on their back. Some families have several, and they are imposing. Their head is about the size of your head plus your torso, to give you an idea. Another primate you can visit while in the volcanoes is the golden monkeys. They are absolutely adorable, completely nonplussed like the gorillas, and usually quite an easy trek to get to. Golden monkeys are an old world monkey found only on the Virunga Massif, like the mountain gorillas. This means they are in Rwanda, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. They love eating bamboo, so you may not have a hard trek, but you may have to navigate the dense bamboo forests. The troops of golden monkeys can be quite large, over 100 in some cases. 
And alas, they too are endangered. This is due to habitat, habitat loss, as well as some poaching. Thus, visiting them in Rwanda is helping to protect them in their natural home, and again, to show through the funds that filter to the local communities that primate conservation can be good for everyone. So, like visiting gorillas, when you visit the golden monkeys, you are part of that con 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 conversation and conservation. Plus, spending time with them one morning is great fun. They seem as curious about you as you are about them. Another thing you can do while visiting the volcanoes is to walk up the hill to Diane Fossey's old research camp. This is where she was stationed and also where she was killed. It's a strenuous climb and rewarding for those who like hiking, like being in the forest and for those who like hiking, like being in the forest and who are intrigued by the Fosse story. And please listen to my previous podcast with three men, Fidel, Bosco, and Ngarambe, who worked with Diane Fosse. It's a bit difficult to understand every bit of it, but it's worth listening to. It pairs well with this one, well, as we sift through the greatness of Rwanda. And if you have listened to that podcast, have watched the film Gorillas in the Mist, perhaps you popped into the Diane Fossey Museum founded by Ellen DeGeneres and have then actually seen those gorillas who would like, likely not even be here if it weren't for Diane Fossey. The whole thing is very powerful when you hike into that forest to the camp. And of course, if it weren't for the forest, no amount of conversation, con conversation, conservation could save the gorillas. So let's wind this up by talking about trees. You may already love forests. I do. Some of my childhood was in Mill Valley, California, just down the road from Muir Woods, where you can visit the ginormous redwood trees. One of my favorite books is Richard Powers' The Overstory. I'm not officially a tree hugger, but I do tend to hug trees. I have hugged a lot of redwoods and baobabs, in fact. It's not that easy to hug trees in Rwandan forests, as there are so many, and they are all bunched together. It's truly jungle-like. Anyway, the Virunga Massive is the mountain range we're talking about. And as I said, it spans the countries of Rwanda, Uganda, and the DRC. The biodiversity of this area is very important, and effects are being, efforts are being made as we speak to protect that. As with so many issues in Africa today, the space for animals has given way for the space for us. The islands of people in a sea of animals from before is now islands of animals in a sea of people. And basically every single habitat is challenged by this. To climb and sleep on the rim of, of Niragongo, the volcano with the largest active lava lake in the world in 2018. The people were wonderful, the place was stunning, and the politics a chaotic mess. Thanks in no small part to the resources located there that we, the smartphone-using world, all want. Again, you can read lots of books about this. I particularly liked Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hutchchild for a lot more info. Rwanda and Uganda are both doing things to save the forest. It's not an easy situation. The Batwa, one of the pygmy, group, pygmy groups of Central Africa, 
are a case in point. They're one of the oldest indigenous communities who are traditionally hunter-gatherers and who lived deep in the forest. But their traditional way of life is no longer sustainable. Hunting in the forest, which included gorillas, is not sustainable. And deforestation was making gathering harder and harder too. Their extensive knowledge of the forest is now being shifted to help them learn agriculture and ways of life that don't depend on hunting and gathering. But it's sad and you can feel a people who are displaced, losing their culture and whose lives have dramatically changed. Visiting them, I felt the sadness watching the elders, but happily the children are already transitioning into a new way of life. Agriculture butts up against the forest in an unmistakable way in Rwanda. Actually, in Uganda, too. Your guide parks the car, and you start off with your gorilla guide. You walk across fields planted with potatoes, pyrethrum, beans, and wheat. He then announces that you are entering the national park. Kind of obvious, actually, as you step over a short rock wall from the treeless agricultural field into a dark jungle. Here you walk, careful not to grab onto a nettle bush, on paths made by bushbuck, forest buffalo, forest elephant, and even in some cases by the gorillas themselves. There are tons of trees, podocarpus, hardwoods, acacias, and bamboo. It's magical to be in this forest. There are also eucalyptus trees, although these are not native. Some projects, including those top lodges I mentioned earlier, are working with the government to replace the eucalyptus with indigenous trees and expand the forest for the animals. I love, love, love this forest, and I love walking in the trees. I don't love the eucalyptus, I'm afraid. You know who else loves the forest? The birds. <laughs> you have to look hard for the birds in the dense foliage, but finding them is worth it. You've got some very special things like the Ruinzori sunbird and the same, uh, the, the Taraco of the same name. There are robins, alise, eagles, herons. If you like birds, it'll be heaven. And like heaven, I guess, Rwanda is another world. Every time I go, I could be no place else on the planet. The people inspire me with their stories of resilience, some so incredibly sad I can't believe it. Yet all with a smile and a positive attitude that puts the rest of us in check in many ways. The landscape is rugged yet soft, the air crisp and cool, the light changing at every moment of the day. And whether you spend your time with those gorillas in the mist, in the dappled light, or in the pouring rain, you are never going to be the same. Thanks for listening to Nella's Tin Trunk Podcast. Wishing you joyful adventures. Until next time.